afternoon or good morning, whatever time of day you're watching, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of The Reset Show. I'm Emma Bridger. I'm your host for today, and I'm a founder of People Lab. We are an employee experience and engagement consultancy, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Donald Clark today, um, who is someone that I've, I've followed for quite a while. I'm really, really keen to get him on the show. So um, I'll give you a quick intro, Donald, then you can add to it. So Donald has got 30, probably more years experience in online learning. So he really was a pioneer in the world of kind of digital learning, e-learning. Um, and, and he's an expert on, on all things um, learning experience design. He founded Epic, Epic Group PLC, which is one of the first, uh, as it was called then, e-learning companies definitely the UK, if not, if not kind of wider, I guess. Um, and he's now the uh, CEO of Wildfire Learning. So I'll we'll ask you a bit more about that in a minute, Donald, because I was very intrigued by that and had a little look at it. Um, you're a, he's a global speaker, um, thought leader, um, advisor, researcher, and also, I believe, um, a visiting fellow at Derby University. I think that's right, isn't it? So absolutely delighted to have you on, um, Donald. And the reason that um, we got in touch with Donald originally, is he's a, a fellow uh, Kogan Page author. Now, he's actually written a number of different books, but the book that I was really interested in kind of getting Donald on the show to talk about was uh, his latest release, which is, uh, make sure I get this right, Learning Experience Design, um, which obviously is a hugely fascinating topic to us and the sort of work that we do. So that's why I invited Donald on today. I'm sure the conversation will go in lots of different weird and wonderful directions. So we're always up for that on the Reset Show. Um, so first question though, Donald, for you is, um, is there anything that I haven't mentioned in, in that, uh, that intro to you that you would like our audience to know about you? Uh, no, that's it. You know, it's it's odd when you give biographies because people only pick out the peaks. They don't put the troughs in, do they? <laughs> and believe me, there have been uh, oh, I've made money. I lost a lot of money as well uh, along the way. Uh, you know, the usual thing in life, you know, that it has its ups and downs. Mm. I often think people should be forced to give their honest biography, you know, to include all the valleys as well as the peaks. <laughs> That's, that's really interesting. I was, I was talking to my kids. I'm sure we'll get into this about, you know, if you're not failing, you're not learning. And I tell them about you know, the time I got rejected from McDonald's, you know, and then I had to do a third year at my A-levels. So I flunked the first go, you know, I tell them all that stuff. So I think you're right, actually. It's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you so even how, edit your own biography in your own head, don't you? You start believing your own little myths about yourself. Yeah. Definitely. I think there's something as well that comes with, with, I don't know about you, but with me, with age, of I'm just getting much more comfortable with who I am and what I've done and, and yeah. what I've achieved and also all the failings as well. So I'm much more confident with kind of being honest about that. Less of a CV, more, more of an honest account. So um, That's so true, yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, this book, I think it's, it was out this year, that's right, isn't it? It's a recent yeah. It, it, it was out uh, in 2021. I had written a book for Cogan Page before that called Artificial Intelligence for Learning, which had become a sort of commercial investment interest of mine. Uh, and I'm running one of the, uh, an AI type company now that creates content. But this, the second book that did okay. So the second book for Cogan Page was this uh, learning experience design book. And that was really because I spent all my adult life really half in the content platform business, you know, really doing this for real, for big global companies. So, I've, you know, I've spent 15 years as a, on the board of Learning Pool, for example, and they're there, that's 300 people in the US, Europe, UK, you know, it's a big company, just bought for 150 million, you know. And so I've always been heavily involved as a practitioner 
you know, in the real world doing things, even though I'm quite a sort of theor theoretician by nature, quite bookish, you see all these books, behind me. but I, all my adult life I've spent really, you know, in companies applying this stuff. And I thought, well, you know, the, there's this, COVID created this massive thirst for this profession that didn't exist before. So mm -hmm. it's quite easy to get a job as a learning experience designer now because every single university is hiring. And of course, all these companies are growing. But everybody seemed to have forgotten that it's been around for a while. Yeah. And that there's a huge body of research that goes back a long time, decades. So we know quite a lot about this, but everybody thinks it started yesterday. Mm. So I wrote this book because I wanted to capture all the research base and then say, what do we know? What are the do's and don'ts when you use video, for example? We know a lot about this, but everybody's starting from scratch again as if we, had, we didn't know anything. So the book's quite a practical book, going yeah. through all of these... Uh, media really from simple text and graphics, when should you use it, how should you use it, you know, cut it till it bleeds, then cut it again, <laughs> that sort of do's and don'ts type stuff. So quite a practical book. Yeah, yeah, I love that about the book, the way you do really um, synthesize kind of the, uh, the science, yeah. um, come on to that in a minute, uh, something I'm very passionate about. Uh, but you kind of, um, you know, everything you talk about is really based in kind of, you know, what we know to be true rather than flawed myths you talk about. Um, but it's a really, really practical book. As you say, it's, um, it's the best of both worlds. It's something I, you know, I think, I think it's, it's just absolutely needed because um, it's I think one of the things about, you know, uh, approaching learning experience design, the whole world of learning is it can be hugely overwhelming, can't it? You talk about the learning ecosystem. And I think, you know, anyone that's ever kind of dabbled in any sort of learning experience design very quickly, well, for me anyway, I can get kind of overwhelmed with the complexity and the sheer volume of what could be done. Yeah. And I kind of lose my way a bit. And I love in your book the way, you know, you kind of really signpost the do's and don'ts and make it easy to navigate that. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? How, how you kind of go from this overwhelming, whether I start to much more practical kind of roadmap, if you like. I think you're absolutely right there. It's like going into this giant supermarket with 40 different types of mustard and so on. You know, how do you choose the one that's appropriate? Yeah. Now, actually increasing, it's a really interesting question for me because I've been working on a project for over a year now with a European company that sort of solves this problem using technology. So you're sitting there with a blank sheet of paper in an organization. Now, most people say are like order takers, you know, they're like the waiter in the restaurant. Uh, oh yeah, management want a course, we'll produce a course. So many, a couple of months later, it pops out, tick that box. They're happy because they've got a course. You're happy. You've got budget. You've delivered the course. The learners go through the course. They feel as though they completed something. But was it the right thing to do? I doubt it in many cases. So what you need to do is sit back at the beginning. We built this thing called the Blender, which is it takes all the data about learners. How many learners have you got? You know, are they working at home? What portion are working at home? What are not? Maybe some demographic stuff about educational background, uh, you know, gender mix, whatever. All that, all that data about learners. Then all the really important stuff is the data about the type of learning. So what type of learning is this? Uh, you know, you're a classic taxonomy type stuff. And then also what resources have you got? Do you have enough money to, do, to build simulations? Probably not. So how do you best spend the money? So what we do is we use some very clever AI in the middle here. We get all this data at the beginning through a questionnaire. We use this data and out pops an optimized blend of learning or a solution. Mm. And I don't think enough people are doing that upfront analysis. They're rushing in. They just say, oh, yeah, uh, oh, I fancy doing a game. Let's have some gamification without any justification whatsoever, you know. And I think you need to sit back here a little bit. People are not doing the analysis. And that was partly why I started the book by saying, yeah, there are two or three methodologies here you can use for this. You know, it's not as if 
we haven't come across this problem before. But increase you made you said something really interesting there that the problem is really big and complex. Mm. So doing this in the back of an envelope no longer works. Mm. Actually, you need a piece of software up front to help you. Because these are a whole load of variables that you can't hold in your head at the same time. If you're going to make an optimized decision on the optimal solution, you need a bit of software to help you, which is what other professions do. We don't, because we just, we're a very people-driven organization. We think the individual is everything, and that software is a bit, you know, a bit techy. But actually, software is our best friend here. So mm -hmm. I hope that answered it. And we, we've, it's a really amazing tool. That's, that's really interesting. What's the, what's the tool called? Well, it's called, it's a working title, it's the Blender. Okay. And uh, I, I, we're really pleased with it because it really does work. And what we did is we built into the, this thing, so you've got inputs, the output being an optimal blend. Mm. We built in uh, all the, so all the research about transfer, for example, and there are about 11 criteria for successful transfer that comes out of the research. And we built them into the model. So when this bit of software is making a decision about the perfect learning solution, it's mm -hmm. checking it off to see whether it's got very high transfer levels. Yeah. And so you can play around with this thing and say, well, I've got 30,000 pounds to spend. Give me your best shot. And, and I really want transfer because that's it's what it's all about, really. People have to apply this in the workplace. And it will give you, okay, you spent 30, but the transfer rating is 84%. That's really good. Excellent. But if you spent uh, if you if you spent a wee bit more, 32,000, you might get that to 95%. Mm. So it's always trying to optimise being the key word here, optimise the solution against your budget. Mm. That's absolutely fascinating and, and something that we, we, we talk about a lot. A few things really resonated there, I suppose. First of all, the, the classic, I want a course. Mm. Um, and and, and you, you talk a lot about mindset in the book, and I completely with you on that. And I guess... You know, in, in the world that I work in, I, you know, work you know, with, with employee experience, employee engagement. So there is a, a learning element to that, absolutely. And, you know, I lost track of the time. Clients go, oh, you know, can you just give us a 90-hour webinar? And they expect that 90, sorry, 90 hours, that'd be great. 90 minutes, 90-minute webinar. And yeah, bite size is good, but it's like, you know, you're not really going to facilitate any kind of behavior, meaningful behavior change from me jumping onto Zoom to talk at your people for 90 minutes. And right. You know, do you want to do this properly or not? And it's a bit like, you know, in the world of internal comms, it's like everyone's just jumping on. Well, there's an app for that. It's like we want the shiny thing. And and I, I just wondered if you've got any insights because you've been in the, the field for, you know, you've got like a long time. And and how do we start to change this mindset so that people actually, like you say, do the right thing and want to do the right thing rather than just a superficial tick the box. I've delivered a course. I've put X amount of people through it. I've, I've achieved my objectives. How do we start to change that mindset? Okay, well, well, some we mentioned earlier, you know, the older you get, the more sort of realistic you become. Yeah. And uh, I worked for a while, I've, I've worked a number of times in universities, for example, and I've come to the conclusion that literally they are unreformable. That's because structurally, in terms of the way they're funded, uh, the, the types of people that are employed, the roles they're given, the buildings they build. I mean, Brighton's got buildings going up like crazy. It's oh, a forest yeah. of cranes. But they're, they're all for wealthy students to uh, accommodation. Meanwhile, the poor people out in Moscow and Brighton are struggling. So and so, I think that's, that's an area where you can, tr you can try, but basically the, that dynamic between research and teaching means that teaching is secondary, almost a tertiary activity. Mm -hmm. And therefore, 
you know, why bother almost? You know, I've grown quite sceptical about that area, about whether you can affect change or not. And I think that's just realistic. I don't, I'm, I'm not even being critical of it. If they want to do it their way, they do it their way. It's just incredibly expensive and long-winded. And so, you know, lecturing is really easy. I do lots of it. Mm. Lecturing is easy. Teaching, teaching is yeah. hard. Absolutely. Speak to somebody who works in a secondary school. And yeah. I've, I've taught, you know, like teenage boys maths. It's a nightmarishly mm. difficult task. Yeah. So I think there are big differences. But your question is really about L&D and the, mm. you know, the area we're working in. And there, again, this is really difficult because there is this uh, course convenience thing that Charles Jennings talks about. You know, people just in such a normal mode of order taking. Mm. We're just delivering courses, asking whether what the next course is we're going to deliver, get the budget, a few mm. months later, slam it out, whether it's online or offline, doesn't really matter. This is totally wrong. So, you know, this is why L&D is never, I mean, I've been on the boards of really big organizations, but you wouldn't consider an L&D person as being on the board because mm. that's, they're like a delivery service, you know, it's like the postal service. And, and, and until we get around to this idea that we're doing what I've described there, we're trying to optimize solutions to grow the business, we'll be forever the waiters who deliver the courses one by one, literally. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a big mistake. Now, how, how do you get around that? I think one of the things that a number of people are trying to do, I think I've tried to do this a bit, is get people to look at the research. The research says, don't do this. Yeah. This is a mistake. Yeah. So going back to, I mean, this goes back away in the 70s, but the really big players for me are people like Marsick, Watkins, J. Cross, all these people. Uh, Gloria Gary wrote a brilliant book on this. This is 1990, 91, saying, stop with the courses. This is not how most people learn. Most people learn on the job, learn by doing. That's where real behavioral change comes. So play to that. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, not to blame L&D much for this, we didn't really have the technology to be able to do that well. Mm. Now we do. Now we have highly, this is why I've been so fascinated by the AI stuff. We can personalize stuff now. Yes, we yeah. can tailor stuff so that it, it, it gets to, it can be pushed to people through notifications, nudge learning, all sorts of clever techniques there, or they can pull it when they need it. Mm. So Bob Mosher's five moments in need, all this stuff is now being realized in real technology. Mm. So we have these learning experience platforms that do that, and that's the big massive growth in the market. Mm. Performance support systems built on the ideas of Bob Mosher, Alfred Remitz and all, all these people about, you know, just think what it's like to be sitting there with a problem, with a client problem, and you need to learn something. You know, you don't, it's like when your printer goes down. How many of us have taken advanced printer courses? You don't go on a course for printers. You wait till it breaks down, then you busily try and solve the problem. Mm. And so that is that delivering, it's like, uh, uh, Marsic described it a bit like shopping, you know, People have a need you want. Suddenly I want to buy something. Or I'm in a bookshop. Sometimes it's accidental. I come across a book I want to buy. But when you're out browsing and finding and you're, you know, you want, and you're going and testing things, trying them on and so on, that's what learning's like a little bit. It's a bit like point of sale. And we should be more sensitive to people's real needs in the workplace. Yeah. And people are busy. You yeah. don't really have time to go on away. I remember the days way back in the day when people would go on a three, four week induction course. And it would be residential in some weird stately home or something. You know, all of that's gone because it was ridiculous. Yeah. But we're still sort of doing that. We just do it in little cheap hotels and classrooms and stuff. You know, it's the same model. Yeah. So I think 
I think really this notion of seeing learning as more resources help support than courses is a big yeah. step forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I know in the book you talk about um, <clears throat> you talk about using things like design thinking and, and, and agile um, as, as tools. And you've got a really great. I, I love the kind of the um, you know the, the kind of the, the pros and cons of using both. And we use um, we use a lot of design thinking in the, the approach we take um, to employ experience. And I think one of the one of the key things that I love about design thinking, or there's lots I love about it, but it really does kind of um, challenge you to put, as you say, the, the learner or the user or the employee or the customer at the heart and centre of the process, which I think is weirdly quite revolutionary for people in, in people-based disciplines. You think they've been, always yeah. been doing it, but they, they really haven't. And I think it's, no, it's just a true. big mindset shift, I think, for a lot of people say, actually, what, what, do, what is the unmet need? What are people actually, what's actually going to help them? I say at that point of sale piece, I think that's really interesting that you talk about that, that personalization. I think, however, one big mistake, which I write about in the book, which people mm. make, and I hear it a lot on the, on the design thinking thing, because it's in the process a little bit, mm. and that's to imagine that this is about empathy. Mm. which I don't think it is. So I go, again, it's not me speaking. I go back to the research. So Donald Norman, who is perhaps the most famous design guru on the planet, mm. uh, you know, he's written books for decades on this. He wrote a whole book about emotional learning and he said, no, stop with the empathy thing. I don't need your empathy. Like, I don't know who you are, but you know, you, you're probably a graduate, you know, in the humanities or something. The idea that you're going to have empathies for this course, for this plumber, is far-fetched. <laughs> he, said, he said, what you should be doing is for putting the empathy to one side. That's not the point. That's a feeling. It's not. Yeah. A, he said, do some analysis. Work out what that plumber has problems with in the field. Yeah. Do some analysis in their job. Deliver the competence-type training that those people need. And also... Don't over-engineer it. Don't think that you, oh, yeah, I'm a storyteller. I'm going to tell the plumber about plumbing if you've never plumbed. <laughs> so I think I think in the book I was trying to head people off at the past a little bit because I've seen a lot of this, you know, over-engineered content, yeah. storytelling and gamification for plumbers. And they're going, oh, what is this? I mean, I just yeah. want to know how to install a sani flow, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and so, but on the empathy thing, I think that's the one thing where, I think we have to be really careful because it's not really about empathy. Mm. It's about understanding rationally what the person has to do in the workplace. And more importantly, what problems or gaps there are, yeah. you know, where, where do they have problems? And there are some really brilliant people here. Richard Clark, who's an academic in California, has written extensively about this. Guy Wallace. There are people who have really, really know this stuff and how to do that analysis, but we don't pick up on that. We don't do yeah. it. Yeah. We, we don't yeah. Do no, I think that's really interesting. And, and, and very often um, when we're talking to, to, to clients, we work with about that insight piece, about that, you know, we, we can't sit in an ivory tower and decide what's best here. We need to go out and get, get some insights. So there might be some stuff you've already got. Great, makes our life easier. We yeah. might have to go out and get some. But there's always a real reluctance to do that, you know. Yeah. And I'm always fascinated by the lack of, I guess, curiosity in, in a lot of the, you know, a lot of the teams that we, we've seen and worked with around, um, or, or I guess perhaps not in those teams, but in their, their bosses to, to go out and actually get curious about the very people they're working with. You know, and it's, it's quite a hard sell sometimes to do that insight discovery piece, isn't it? Well, I think what, and also I think L&D have shied away from it. I've, I've written a lot about this. I think over the last decade or so, L&D has got a bee in their bonnet about leadership all the time. Like you, you can't really go into a learning meeting without hearing the word leadership within five seconds. Mm. And I'm deeply suspicious of this because I think this is the wrong people to be training, you know? 
never have we had we've had a tsunami of leadership training and never have we had so little of it in every sphere of human endeavor because i don't think this is about training and i think the leadership leadership stuff is actually what rebadged old management training actually but yeah maybe. and therefore I'm, I'm a bit suspicious about that but also it's the wrong target most organizations suffer from poor competence at the middle and lower level no no teaching people how to be Genghis Khan, you know, and they with their combination lock briefcase. You know, you know, I'm I'm Robert, I work in accounts, can I be a leader? Well, why? I want you to be a really good accountant, you know? And then I think this has been a big mistake on LD to push things to this very narrow area of training. You know, enough for the leadership. I, it's okay. I don't mind some of it. But yeah. it, the portion of budgets that are spent on this is way out of proportion to the business need. And it's I think really it's driven. Yeah. I think it's driven by the fact that L and D want to feel important, and it feels really great to be doing leadership program. Yeah. But you know, what you there I go. Well, what, have you led a company? You know, mm -hmm. what do you know about leadership? Yeah, I think you led workshops, but like, what is the area of expertise here? And of course, what they've done is read a book on it. Whatever the current adjective is, it quiet leadership this week. Is yeah. it calm leadership? Is it? I don't know. Name an adjective. Show me a book. There's dozens of them. So yeah. I think there's an inconsistency in the definition, in the context. Mm. That's really up. interesting. It's really, I hadn't really thought of it that way before. That's definitely got, got me thinking. And I, I mean, I guess I did sort of, well, actually I started my career as an academic. I was a lecturer and resonated with me sort of about le lecturing versus teaching. I, I lectured and also did a, I lasted one semester teaching A-level was like, I can't do that. That's really hard. I can't do <laughs> yeah. I fell into the corporate world um, for 10 yeah. years. And, and, and I remember being, you know, getting my first job when I was managing people and actually being pretty rubbish at it if I'm honest I didn't, I haven't got yeah. a clue and I was trying to do the right thing but going on various leadership development courses to try and train me but over the years it was always interesting as you said there was always like a latest model in the case there's not that this week it, it, we've got to do that now and we've got to do that now and it was always like well what, which is the right thing to do so I'm interested actually what what would you say is a single most useful or I don't know most life-changing or whatever piece of, of learning you've been through Piece of learning for me? Yeah. Now, it's, somebody asked me this. To go back to that leadership for the moment, I mean, I, mm. I go, you know, imagine going into the pub and you you meet somebody for the first time in your group of friends, you know, you know, meet Paula or something, and you go, what do you do? And she goes, well, I'm a leader. You go, get out of here. What? <laughs> you, think, right, <laughs> you think you are? Yeah. Like, I'll go and speak to somebody else then. Yeah. So yeah. The, the very idea, this hierarchical thinking also is this totally bizarre and a much flatter, you know, workplace. Being a leader isn't about being a leader. It's actually just being a, a good manager, being a real person and being authentic. And I think, think people, well. <laughs> these courses teach people to be incredibly inauthentic, you know, mm -hmm. give them these little tricks and techniques, like mm -hmm. NLP or something. So, I, I think that's the problem. But going back to your question there, this happened to me many, many years ago. And it was a quite, I came from a sort of working class background. I hadn't, didn't know anybody in business or anything, you know, mm. and then went off and uh, I said, but, and this was a working class guy who said this. He said, don't take it. My best piece of advice to you is don't take advice. And I didn't really know what he meant by this at the mm -hmm. time, but boy, do I know now that I'm, you know, getting towards the end of my life. Because I've always ignored the groupthink. So I've never joined in. I never joined the scouts, the clubs, 
it was on the back of this guy, really. And he said that, don't join things, because that will just suck you into how they think. Mm. So I've never been a member of the CIPD or LPI or anything with an acronym. I just, mm. I've never joined it. Because I prefer going back to the real evidence, which is yeah. the science. You know, you can find it online. You know, I, I like Mayer, because he's published 500 studies in online learning. You know, I, I'm a I'm a member of the Mayor Club, but but I find that through Google Scholar. You know, yeah. I'm not going to find it by joining one of these organisations because what I'm going to get from them is, oh, here's the latest thinking in leadership, and I fall asleep immediately because mm -hmm. there's a thousand and one articles on leadership in, in the training press, and they're all much the same. Yeah. So yeah. I know this is a roundabout. It's a weird answer to that, but I think learning to be yourself to be authentic to yourself and, mm. and to, you know, work hard at solving problems, but mm. don't get sucked into thinking that because all of these people believe this, they're right. Mm. And all my success in business, I've been reasonably successful in business, has been by, you know, going the road less traveled. Yeah. <laughs> well, you sound, you sound like my husband. My husband is, um, he was on the research show last week, actually, because he's ah. him and my son are both Asperger's. They have very different... Right take on the world yeah. he always follow that watch the, observe the herd and do the opposite he nicked it off someone but I'm always like oh no that just feels a bit <laughs> no I, I just think it's, it's it's a really interesting um it's just I think it's a really interesting kind of conversation start with people about what they've actually found useful it's something I've quite often asked people because yeah. Especially when you get to kind of my age, and you know, we've been on so many courses. I mean, I'm I'm a real nerd. I'm a life, lifelong learner, but you know, I've I've done various academic qualifications, and I keep dipping my toe in. Should I should I do the PhD or not? And I sort of genuinely enjoys the process and being surrounded by, you know, that kind of environment. But I know that a lot of people aren't like that. But I have to say, the single most useful thing I ever did was years ago when I was in Brighton. I worked for what was Seaward Energy, and they put me on a just a new manager put me on a a coaching for performance course and I'd never done it and, and that for me was completely transformative just learning how to ask questions and listen so yeah. that's what I was learning how, and it's just that's for me was the single most useful and it's interesting because it wasn't about sitting in a classroom and learning texts and reading articles and journals and everything it was about just listening to people so I um, just think it's a really interesting question to ask so going on to that then um you do talk about myths in the book and all the sort of myths that we swallow up in in the workplace about what we think works and there's a, I really love this sort of you know you kind of delve into a few of your good good examples but yeah just just talk us through that a bit about some of the myths that we adhere to when it comes to learning and, and what we need to kind of finally let go of yes because the the certain names you hear pop up in when you go and train the trainer courses or in the L&D community are typically mm -hmm the the people who got it all wrong in my view so it's set 50 60 year old theory people you know myers-briggs myers-briggs has no scientific validity it's an absolute disgrace that people should be spending money on it because it's an old union bit of astrology almost and that it should be determined people's recruitment careers and promotion is morally bankrupt it's worse than bad it's downright evil so some of these things are hanging around like bad smells, you know, that you're talking about, you know, so if you really go into the detail of Myers-Briggs, and I've written a lot about this, yeah. you know, this is, this is a pair of no background in psychology, read a book in Jung, come up with great marketing wheeze, made up, and the, the, and the reason it exists is people make money from it. It's a bit like a Ponzi scheme, really, mm. but it still hangs around because we're too lazy to change it. And then 
if you go into Bloom, even people don't really understand Bloom. They take that little pyramid, which Bloom never had anything to do with. Uh, and of course, it's only one third because Bloom's taxonomy is a tripartite thing. So they only take the cognitive thing. They dump all the practical vocational stuff because they're only interested in courses that deliver theory. And then they focus on the wrong thing. So of course, it becomes an abstract theoretical thing, mm -hmm. like a pyramid. But learning's messy. It's nothing to do with the pyramid. It's all wrong. In fact, mm -hmm. knowledge plays a much more important role in every one of those steps. So you can dump the pyramid from Bloom. And then my least favourite, <laughs> the one that always amazes me, is Abraham Maslow. I'd never heard of Abraham Maslow. I, I, I don't know why when I came into it. I kept hearing the name. I went back and I did what I usually did. This is years ago. And I, when I say I bought the books, the, the, some of it's quite insubstantial. Some of them are pamphlets and books. And I did the reading. I'm going, this is terrible. This, this guy is just, it's like, it was like an armchair theorist who, you know, he just included his mates and he was just speculating away. It's very 1960s feel to it all. Mm. And I thought, why are people taking this pyramid so seriously? Then Maslow's pyramid. And then I found out he had nothing to do with the pyramid. In fact, the stuff I'd read in the book didn't match the pyramid. He, he didn't think it was hierarchical. I'm going, where's all this coming from? And of course, what, what trainers love are PowerPoints now, so they love little colourful pyramids. Bloom, Maslow, Dale's cone is even worse. That you remember 10% of what you hear, 20% of what you write, blah. That is a complete. That was actually even worse because that was a complete fiction. The person just made that up. And of course, I, I still see it all the time. I've, I saw a vice chancellor present it. Interestingly, the head of an e-learning company presented it back to me when they were trying to raise capital. I see it everywhere. And so the... The profession is infused with this learning styles being a classic hope, piece of hope. Yeah. And so, so it's everywhere. Now, if you ask people about the other research, some of the things we've been discussing here, they have no knowledge of these names because mm -hmm. it's, it's, I don't know. I get the feeling that it's a profession that's slightly anti-intellectual at times, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. They, you know, oh, yeah, all that highfalutin stuff. They'd much rather read astrology than astronomy mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and it's a mistake you don't have to read all this stuff but at least mm. read the people who have read it yeah. and who have got a judgment on its validity or not yeah. we don't even take that step yeah yeah but the world of academia this is one of my sort of bugbears and I, I work with a wonderful lady called Katie Truss who's a professor at um where she's at I think she's at Kingston now um, about the gap between the world of academia and real life and, and the world of academia is in its ivory tower and even you know I mean I, I you know I've lectured and I've you know studied to a fairly high level and even I have to read a you know a, a, you know a piece of research in a journal four times to kind of understand what on earth it's talking about says even yeah. as arrogant I don't mean it to I just mean I've been in that that world and I understand the kind of lexicon and language but it's so inaccessible you know and most people just look at it and go I have no idea what I was trying to say. And you read it back four times, you go, oh, so what it's saying is that if if, if you switch on that, it, it, it turns that off. Why didn't they just say that? And I just think it doesn't do itself any favours. and It makes itself yeah. ex exclusive. Well, the, there is a, I think what this, uh, I think this is spot on this analysis. And to be fair to the people on this side, is because it's inaccessible, there's this gulf in the middle. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. one of the things that I've, I've been involved in for many years now is, when I first started this, I started taking notes. I'm an obsessive note taker. And, uh, and because, I, you know, going, the people in learning don't seem to know much about learning, I'll, I'll, I'll set myself that task. I'll learn. And so I'm up to 200 blog pieces on learning theorists, you know, on everybody mm -hmm. from, uh, from Socrates to Seligman, you know. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I wrote them in a way that they're readable by, you know, people who, you know, you'd, I, I'm not... It, 
life's too short to be able to go and read the book by Bloom or read Abraham Maslow's original text. But there are people who have read it who can summarize this stuff for you, give a view on its validity or not. So I wrote these 200 blogs and they were quite popular and they're all clustered and they're all about one page each, you know. And then on top of that, I've been doing a whole lot of podcasts with a guy called John Helmer on the history of learning theory. So these are great minds in learning. In fact, we I did one today on the Greeks, which is Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and the math and uh, uh, and the mathematicians at that time. But we've done things on the cognitivists, behaviorists, instructionalists, pragmatists. You know, we've got all these, but in a very practical way. And I was, what do these theories tell you about what you should do in the real world? Yeah. And so we did a whole series of of. I mean, the podcasts are really interesting medium. How many? How, I was reflecting on this yesterday. How many people in the LND use podcasts for learning? Almost none. And yet about 60% of the people in the web are listening to them. Yeah. And that says something about this course delivery. It doesn't seem like a course, so I'm not going to do it. Well, actually, you know, it for for this type of abstract discussion, mm. this could be a really good thing for people. You know, get the CEO on and do an interview podcast with them. Get some external experts in. That would be more valuable so they can listen to it on the way to work or when walking the dog or exercising or simply take notes and learning in a more serious fashion. But we tend to have this view of the courses, the courses, the course. Mm. And even in online learning, if it doesn't have, you know, video graphics text, several multiple choice questions, <laughs> it's not a course. Well, why? Why is that? I mean, actually, I don't I don't do that stuff, you know, because and I, I'm a like you even a lifelong learner thing, you know, but mm. academics talk, I go to I go sometimes see these talks and by academics and lifelong learning, nobody goes back to university. I mean, like, are you kidding me? You know, I'm not, I'm not going to go back and hang out 18 old undergraduates. You know, the university system plays no real role in lifelong learning. We mm. do it. And I remember I'm on the side of the people who don't go to uni. You know, I'm big on vocational learning. I was a director mm. of City and Guilds. I spent all my adult life sponsoring things in that area and so on. I'm a big fan. I came from that background. 50% of kids don't go to university. Yeah. And you're all training because because everybody in the L&D, they're all graduates, they tend towards that theoretical mm-hmm. stuff because that's how they were taught. Mm-hmm. But it's not how the plumber was taught yeah. and it's not what they need. So I think vocational learning is a bugbear for me. I think we don't spend enough on basic competence type stuff in organisations. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I really love that. That's a really, really good point. A really good challenge as well. And, and what's your view on... Um, the individuals, um, I guess, not responsibility, um, but something I, I, I'm really interested in is, again, as a psychologist myself, looking at the world of employee experience, how can we how can we help people to enable their own experience? So, for example, hypothesis might be if you're more optimistic, you might have a better time at work than if you're a real pessimist. I mean, I don't know if that's true, just as an example. Mm-hmm. And we can teach people to be more optimistic if you're more resilient, for example. So I'm really interested in this idea of how we can set people up for success. So how can we enable, facilitate, engender people, you know, wanting to, to pull that learning? So wanting to have a thirst for like, actually, I want, we know that, you know, growth, personal growth, you know, informally is something that that is good for us and it helps our well-being we want to feel we're getting better at something making progress um how can we engender that and how can organizations do more to engender that have you got any thoughts on that well again i think lnd have gone hearing off down the wrong rabbit hole in this one because i actually like diversity in the workplace but not in the way it's framed in courses 
I think we should be much more forgiving about people in the workplace in a sense, because it's a diverse group of people, let them be who they are a bit. But we've mm -hmm. got into this mode of policing them now. So L&D or HR has become the, the people who defend the organization against its own employees. That's totally bizarre. That never used to be the case when I first came in. It was about personal development and letting people grow and flourish. It's now about protecting the organization from things they might say or do or whatever. And so, you know, take values training. I mean, it's just the banality of values courses. You know, somebody in HR has come up with a few abstract nouns, all beginning with C or I or something. And it looks great on the website. And then you go in this course, I say, well, what are your values? Well, I've got values. I don't know. People in the pub don't use the word value. What values do you have? Yeah. If somebody asks you that in the pub, you go, move on. <laughs> like, I'll find somebody else to speak to. Yeah. It, it's the language of HR and yeah. L&D. And then the values there, you're, well, that's the organization's values. Why should I have the organization of the Royal Bank of Scotland, for God's sake? You know, I don't mind working for you. You pay me a wage, I'll do an honest day as well. But why should I have your values? And of course, the values are really platitudes. They're usually things that would, who would disagree with the fact they're going to be nice to customers or something? Yeah, yeah. And it's normally in a stupid acronym where the second letter has just been made up to fit the word or whatever. So, and yet, and yet people take this so seriously as if it really matters. And I think, I think let people flourish, let them be a wee bit more themselves. Mm. And so on the, on the, so we know diversity training, for example, doesn't work. There are massive, I mean, huge longitudinal studies showing that training courses are not the way to do this. Mm. The way to do it is to do it structurally within the organization on recruitment, promotion, all sorts of things. There are all sorts of little tweaks you can do to, to solve that problem, and it is a real problem. And of course, the, the view of diversity we have is certainly not including working class people, for example. <laughs> they're, they're excluded from the mix here, you know? They're yeah, condemned yeah. as being uh, ruffians, you know, or the riffraff. Mm. And so I find this top-down policing direction in which everyone's gone, I can understand the dynamic behind it and the needs behind it, and there certainly are important needs, but boy, is it a sledgehammer to crack a really important set of different nuts. And I, I think the workplace really needs to change in terms of being more flexible. COVID did this, to be honest. COVID, mm -hmm. COVID made people, everybody rethink about work. Mm -hmm. And actually, so I've been involved in some big organizations and one of them is a big learning organization. But you know, when you ask people, they don't want to come back to work five days a week. It's like a three day, two day split. Now that didn't come from HR or learning or anybody. It came because Actually, we had this massive accidental experiment that showed that, that showed that actually people don't want to hang about with other people eight hours a day, five days a week. They, they really don't because they've got kids and they don't want to commute as much as they have and all this stuff. So I think we need to pay more attention to that stuff rather than you know, bowling these huge bowling balls like leadership training, or, right? Yeah. You're going to go on a course on values and diversity training. You know, like another one that's basically pointing out my deficits as a human being. Yeah. Is this what training has become? That you know, I have these deficits, and you're gonna, you're you're gonna, you're gonna cure me. <laughs> I mean, the worst is unconscious bias, which is such an evil thing. The idea that somebody in HR even thinks they have the qualifications or rights to probe my unconscious. <laughs> Give me a break. I don't, think, I don't even know what the unconscious is, or even the, you know, in modern parlance, you know, even, even that word is rarely used in psychology itself now, you know? It's just, it, this is a very, very complex area. 
And the idea that you just bowl up with some 10 question questionnaire and you've diagnosed my unconscious, mm. don't insult me. This is really, no, it's, you know, I mean, I, when I, when I talk about unconscious biases, I was like, well, it's, it's, it's all there for a reason because we didn't have them. We'd never do anything. So we'd be having to make every decision from right. scratch. We'd be overwhelmed by data. We couldn't cope. So it's actually, most of it's there to help us. So, uh, yeah, it's, well, it was this really is right. Yeah. I mean, if you, so people talk about bias. I'm quite heavily involved in this because of the AI stuff I've been doing. So you, you've got to be really conscious of it in AI when you write algorithms. Mm. But the real experts, and so you go, who, right, who do we go to? Well, we go to Daniel Kahneman because he does have yeah. a Nobel Prize for this. Yes. And he has written a fairly accessible book. Yes. It's not actually that readable, Thinking Fast and Slow. <laughs> but, but you can get other people who've read it and, and they will explain to you. Now, Daniel Kahneman says something quite interesting in that book that nobody in L&D ever gets to. Mm-hmm. To be fair, it's a, it's a very difficult book to read it. It's a yes. half academic, half not. Yeah. But in the penultimate page, unfortunately, it's the same last page, he says, basically, biases are uneducable. He said, you can do like, and he said that even, even, even Daniel Kahneman, who has a Nobel Prize, makes these mistakes all the time. He That's says, great. we can't help it. We, this is an evolved organ we have up here in this. Yeah. Uh, we're not you can't change this by simply sending people on courses yeah. but you can he's not quite as harsh as that he's saying you can do things but he's big on changing process in an organization mm-hmm. for example because that affects behavioral change making people aware of their biases of course helps but it doesn't yeah. it doesn't really lead to massive behavioral change yeah. Yeah, absolutely so think, you're you right about being subtle about this yeah Go down, go down a whole whole different uh, different research show on this, which which maybe we'll get a chance to do at some point. Um, one of the things I really I thought was really helpful again in the book was the way you um, very clear about the different roles and responsibilities. I found that really helpful actually because in my line of work, I kind of dabble in uh, some of the different areas. And sometimes I'm the subject matter expert. Sometimes I'm I'm actually designing the learning experience. I thought it was really helpful just to get clear on the different roles. And also, I think for me, again, reflecting on, on how organizations approach learning, I thought just them really getting much more professional about the different skills they have, rather than just somebody that's kind of a, gen- a generalist L&D person, actually know quite different skills needed for different parts of the learning journey. So just want to talk to us about, about that for a little bit, because I think that's quite interesting uh, and very useful insight that I got from the book. Yeah, I mean, way back in the day when this first, technology and learning thing came across when I was running it. I mean, I literally took the brief from the client, wrote the documentation, did the graphics, did all the coding, did all the testing, did all the client liaison and all the project management as one person. And uh, that was, but you know, you're a jack of all trades, a master of none. Now there's some strength to that actually, because you get a more cohesive sort of, you know, you're minimizing the communication problems. So you tend not to get over-engineered stuff when you do that because mm. you're, you've got finger on all the pies. And then, of course, that was unsustainable because th- this industry's got so big now, you have to have differentiation of labour. But mm. we have to be clear about what those roles are. Now, the subject matter expert is a really interesting one to start with because I think that's where most of the problems happen. Mm. So you can speak to people like Richard Clark and Guy Wallace, and they're saying, just be careful with subject matter experts because, one, they think that everything has to be known, but actually the job of people in learning is to teach the need to know stuff. Or it's what do I have to walk out within my head? You know, the rest is reference. What do I have to remember? Or what skills and knowledge do I have to have when I go back to the workplace? And of course, that's not what subject matter experts think is needed. They think, here's the manual, you have to know it all. 
uh, including, uh, you know, which is why we always do petty learning objectives at the front of courses. <laughs> like, no, it's a complete waste of time. So courses are always over-engineered. You can reduce, mm. I'd say any course could be reduced in, in one editing session by a third if you really apply cognitive principles to this. Yeah. Now, the yeah, subject yeah. matter expert also, interestingly, there's brilliant research by Guy, uh, by Richard Clark on this. They actually, don't, they actually are completely deluded about what they think they know because a lot of it are skills which are, they've sublimated, so they, don't, they can't actually recall them. They know how to do it, but they can't express it. So what you do is you interview the methods that are, you know, in critical task analysis, so mm. it's technically called, you would interview a subject matter expert and then interview another one. And you will immediately notice that there are two completely different testimonies about the same task mm -hmm. or yeah. job because they miss things out because mm. they've automatized the process. Mm. And so what you have to do is interview and sometimes observe the job as well, and then work out where the gaps are and then come back to a single version of the tasks and work out where the problems are. But the subject matter expert also, if you're making a video, so a very good friend of mine, uh, 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 Tom, who runs a company called Nice Media, does learning videos. And he's written a really beautiful book called Watch and Learn about how to make learning videos. And yeah. he says, the first thing you do is never give the subject matter expert the script of the video. <laughs> and he's right. I have made a lot of videos, including a feature film. Uh, so I got to heavily, took a deep, deep dive into this area because they will kill it. They will start putting little arrows in with speech bubbles because they think you should be saying everything. But yeah. drama is not like that. Drama is about showing, not yeah. telling. And so all those tricks in the trade, you know, on yeah. video alone, I give talks just on video production and good and bad. Learning videos are different from entertainment videos. You know, they're very, very different. Yeah. You go yeah. slower. You have to summarize at the end. You have to chapterize it more. There are 101 things you, you should be doing. And, and so... And there's the rub, really. You know, I think you have to be aware that different people play different roles and that they shouldn't be pretending to be the other one. The mm, subject matter expert yeah. is not the designer or editor of the video. Yeah, you don't yeah. want them editing the video. You want an editor who edits the video. Now, as this has got increasingly complicated, however, I think there's one job in the middle that's gone a, bit, a little bit missing here. Mm -hmm. And so we have learning experience designers who think it's all about, yeah, you know, I'm Paul and Julie and... I'm 23 and I'm a storyteller and I'm going to tell you all how it really, all about your job. You go, give me a break. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You've done no analysis. You've never done this job. This is why you get the over-engineered stuff. Yeah. And I think we need to sit back and understand that people who really know a lot about learning theory now really need to be involved in the process to yeah. stop, just yeah. to stop the excesses. These are all good people trying to do a good thing, yeah. but there's something in the center of the solar system, like the sun that's needed, that's yeah. often absent. People who know about learning and that you shouldn't be over-engineering this, yeah. and that maybe maybe it doesn't even need a course. Yeah. And this is why this you know this idea of upfront analysis using a bit of software is such a powerful thing because I think that can head people off at the pass a wee bit more. Mm. I mean, I think billions are wasted on training. I think I'll, I think a lot of the fallen productivity has down to people going on endless courses that have no impact on performance. Yeah. I really do believe that now. And that's, that would be horrible if that's true. But I suspect there's some truth in it now. Yeah. People are spending a lot of time on very abstract courses that yeah. are doubtful change in behavior and impact on the organization. Yeah. I just wonder if we overestimate the amount of behavioral change. I mean, I'm a behavior change psychologist, what I do. But I was just thinking, you know, I've just done a couple of courses with IDEO who are amazing. They know how to design <laughs> courses. 
And even me loving doing them and going on them, have I applied it yet? And I haven't. And I really want to. And I, and I actually need to as part of something else I'm doing. So I just wonder if we perhaps overestimate our capacity to, you know, how much capacity do we have to, to make big changes? Not talking about small nudge changes, but the bigger changes. And I think it's really interesting. And, and something else obviously you talk about as well. I think you're absolutely right with the, the need for that, um, whether they're a you know psychologist or, or whatever, but someone that understands the the science behind things like you know having to keep it you know the need to keep it simple so people can retain it, the need to bring in some some nudge um, nudge theory into it and those sort of elements because I think that's that's that expertise is often missing from what I've seen in um, pulling it all together. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I th- and I think there's one mantra here that I I use myself a lot when I'm ever doing anything, and that is that learning is a process, not an event. I think if I think if people had that one of these you know horrible posters up on their wall in the learning bit, it's a process, not an event. And what you're doing is designing events. And mm. you know, it's not like a conference or a classroom or a lecture. Learning goes on because most people forget almost everything you're going to tell them. Like we knew that 1885 Ebbinghaus, 130 years ago, the mm. research was done, and we don't pay a blind bit of attention to it. We're mm. still designing events. An actual fact, which is why retrieval practice, subsequent practice, space practice, interleaving, a whole load of new things have come along, but we're completely ignoring them. And I think that's ridiculous. You know, the world, the science has moved on, the technology is there to do it, and we're still batching people through events. Mm-hmm. You know, like you say, you're, well, let's have a webinar on it, and 30 people sit for an hour, probably doing their email at the same time and wandering off. Okay, at the end, they break, go into chat, ask a question. I mean, I've given lots of them. Same, I can predict the questions. You know, I know exactly what questions are going to be asked. The same old questions, same old people. The extroverts, of course, going back to your husband's point. You know, not, not everybody wants to be those, those people. Yeah. And yeah. also, you know, we're, you know, learning, this learning has to be fun thing. You know, it's not, learning's not a circus. We're not clowns. You know, like, like I'm not. And, you know, I do, if, if I'm in a room and people say, can you turn to the person next to them and hug them? No, 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 no I'm out of here. They, yeah. they, you have no right to impose that nonsense on me, you know? And yeah. But that's imposed upon people who are quiet and introvert yeah. and more analytic and systematic in their thinking. And I think that's quite cruel, in fact, and wrong. Yeah. Because people in L&D are happy-go-lucky extroverts doesn't mean to say that they are right. Yeah. So we've had this imposition of learning is fun, events, you know, let's get the colored pens out. And of course, most people are, a lot of people in life are, have no truck with that, you know? Yeah. They, they, it's almost the Disneyfication of learning I've, I've found has become common, which, yeah. which repulses me. You know, it's okay, I, like, I take my kids to Disneyland. I'm not going to go there on my own at my age, you know? And yet people try to tell me that this is how I'm going to learn. I said, no, it's, uh, I'm afraid not, you know? Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Um, like, I mean, I, I am a hardcore extrovert and, and even I, like if I'm in a room with people and I've suddenly got a role play, I'm like, oh no, God, dear God, yeah. please, no, I just, it's just, this is work. Let's not try and pretend to, it, you know, it, it isn't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, again, I'm a positive psychologist as well. So I'm all about the, uh, how we facilitate more positive emotion because that's really good from a kind of um, neurotransmitter point of view. But that kind of forced, forced fun thing is just, it feels like an episode of The Office isn't it and you sort of sat thinking oh this is just uh, and again if you go back to the emotional side of learning so people will go back to bloom so they only pick the cognitive pyramid forget that there's another book on effective learning that was written not by him but uh, by his colleague and then we have tank set there's half a dozen really serious people who have really looked at emotional learning nobody knows their name of course 
But everybody thinks they're an expert in emotional learning all of a sudden, you know, but it's all cr like really crappy role playing and stuff. Actually, the um, uh, role, so we did a big podcast on this, just these theorists, if you're interested. And oh, yeah. uh, what the theorists say, to try and summarize it quickly, is that don't be fooled into thinking that emotion is always a good thing in learning. It's actually emotions are a, a sort of messy, wide sort of tapestry mm -hmm. of things. And there are some emotions that are absolutely destructive in learning. One is over arousal. So we know this, you can measure it. Yeah. You actually lose the ability to remember and retain things and cognitively pay attention if you're over aroused. Yeah. Uh, and that quite often happens in VR, for example. People are surprised sometimes that VR learning doesn't work, but you're so sort of taken by the thing, you're not learning anything. You're just in a state of wonderment. Yeah. yeah. And actually, a lot of learning needs quiet, solitary reflection. Mm. It needs calm. It needs to be able to process things, think about them, bring your imagination and working memory to the to the to the table as it were. And this is the mistake of thinking that people should always be in rooms with flip charts and felt ship uh, felt it pens and bowls of glacier mints in the middle of tables always talking to other people. I've been I don't go to those events now because I learn absolutely nothing. I honestly do learn nothing when I'm sitting in a round table with other people and then the chair is always the extrovert who feeds back their extrovert stuff and forgets about the other people in the table and all those old tropes you get in training. And we moved on for that, from that, I think, because the technology says this is raw. Well, not the psychology says this is just partial. It's the extrovert's view of the world. Mm. And so I think you asked a very good question of what should the modern workplace be like? And I think it should be more sympathetic mm. to, I like the word, neurodiversity is a good word for me because it's mm. true. Yeah. And people, I've worked with, you know, I've been in the technical world all my, all my adult life, you know, working with highly, really super smart technical people who are, who are more systematic in their thinking and will solve problems for you. And they hate this stuff. They have no truck for it. The way they learn is with other people like them. If they have a problem, other people will help them. Massively social. Yeah. Everything's online. Other people will help you if you have a problem. You know, and I mean out there on the internet, not even in the organization. And we have a lot, we have more to learn from them than they have from our balloons absolutely. and pens world, you know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I could, could not agree more. I, we, we're pretty much coming up to time, uh, Donald. So, um, it's been really fascinating. I could honestly, I could, I could talk all day to you, but I know you're very busy. So, um, and it's quite a tough question, I suppose, but, um, if you kind of summarise, what does a brilliant learning experience look like or feel like? Or what should it look like or feel like? Well, for me, I've come, I've come to believe that it shouldn't be framed as a learning experience. The older I've got, and I, I really like that the flow idea. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. That I learn best when I am in that uh, uh, chicken, the Mihai, I can never pronounce his name, the guy who wrote the book of flow. You can say Mihai. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been able to pronounce it. Uh, in fact, we, we started calling him MC on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. We've got such a tangle. Yeah. But he's onto something there generally, and Donald Norman talks about this. Donald Norman says technology is at its best when it's invisible. Yeah. And like when we've been having this chat here, it's really interesting. I'm totally unaware. I mean, I've had several podcasts where the person interviewed me I mean, you're just along the road in Hastings, I believe, isn't it? Is yeah. that right? Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? Course, yeah. But I've done it to people in South Africa and, and America, and you sort of forget how unbelievable this is, that we should be able to talk to each other like this. Mm. And you forget about the technology, isn't it? It's completely invisible. I feel as though you're in the room with me. We're having a chat here. Yeah. It's really different from real life. 
And I think learning works when it's like that. You're in the flow. You've been able to reflect and think about what the other person's asking you and saying. Uh, and therefore, this is why courses are a wee bit alien to me because they, they, they fossilize things, institutionalize them in, in many ways. I'm not saying they're all bad. There's some brilliant courses that I've been on and that should continue. But I think there are too many of them and they're often structured as these events. They don't have any follow-up. And that's the mistake. So I'll go back to that phrase I used there that learning is a process, not an event. If you're really, it sort of sums up the psychology of learning that phrase. Mm -hmm. The other big one, I think, if anybody like yourself, I know the whole of psychology of learning really comes down to less is more. <laughs> and those three words, if there's three words you want to know and have tattooed on your wrist or something, less is more would be the mantra there because what, you know, it's just empirically, you can prove it, you know, people skim read, uh, they don't read, they, yeah. they, they, they take shortcuts all the time. So your job as an educator is always to crystallize things. Mm. Uh, and also don't think that you are, that teaching is learning, don't confuse the two. Learning mm -hmm. is always by the learner and it takes effort. It's hard. Learning is not easy. And it's an illusion if you think you're just going to come up with this experience that makes them feel really nice and makes it easy because they're going to forget it. So a video is the one I always talk about. On video, like if you watched a box set and you watched like two series, can you remember what the third episode in the first series is? You won't even remember the title of it. Yeah. You, yeah and yeah. I say, well, write down the number of lines you remember of dialogue. You'll be lucky if you can recall three. Yeah. Because it's like a shooting star, your working memory video is in one eye out the other, you know, it's burning up behind you. What you're getting is emotional impact. Yeah. yeah and yeah. video is great for emotional attitudinal change. It's terrible for knowledge. It's just terrible. And so, but we use it a lot for this. And so you have to be sensitive to what these media are good and bad at. But we have to sensitize. I think the big thing is be sensitive to the fact that people just forget stuff. Yeah. But we don't. We assume they're going to remember what you tell them. And of course, they walk out the room and Ebbinghouse, 50% is gone by the time they've hit the car. Yeah. <laughs> 20 minutes. Yeah. It's empirically true. And what do we do about it? Nothing. But we have, the, we have these little devices in our pockets now, smartphones. We can actually do really interesting things yeah. now. Yeah. And good learners, after a while, if you, you've been through, you know, you've taught in different contexts, you'll know that learning is hard. It takes effort. It always takes effort, and the, it's an illusion that you can short-circuit it. And all this Disneyfication, making people feel good because you've come up with this brilliant video, which they're going to forget, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you'll spend all that money just on making pe people feel good temporarily, when what you need to do is know stuff or do stuff or change their behavior. Mm, Those things are really hard. Yeah. No, that's that's great. That's that's really it absolutely resonates so, so much. So thank you for your time, Donald. I really appreciate it. It's a fascinating conversation. Um, and I absolutely love the book. I think it's brilliant. And I, you know, just devoured it. It was just and it really spoke to me. And I, and I learned I genuinely learned a lot from it. Um, but I will just keep dipping back into it because I definitely won't remember it all, especially not at my age. So thank you <laughs> yeah. so much for your time. And, no problem. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a pleasure. Really nice. As I say, we were in the flow there when I felt this is a great thing about podcasts. Uh, keep more learning should be informal, I think, you know, yeah. less structured. And uh, I think we would, and that last question, it struck me that we were doing what I think is right here mm. in this podcast. You know, let's. Mm. More it's definitely interesting when you get in the flow. But thank, thank you. I really, really enjoyed that. No problem. Um, 
really appreciate your time. Thank you.